Good morning, everybody. It is wonderful to gather together with you this morning and especially to gather with you around the Word of God. And so if you have your copy of the Word of God, we'll be spending our time today in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, taking a little break from the Philippians series that Pastor Nick has been going through. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 will be our primary text today. And I think it's appropriately titled, Our Radical Rescue. I'm going to talk a bit about where we were and where God has brought us and where he will ultimately bring us. Let's pray as we begin our time. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the great privilege it is to gather with your people on a Sunday morning. And to sing praises to you, to extol your grace, to extol your mercy, to very clearly express that we have received grace from you, we receive grace from you presently, and we will ultimately be brought into eternal glory because of your grace. And so, Lord, thank you that even as we study your word this morning, our hearts can be uncovered and discovered even as your word works. And so I pray, Lord, that your spirit would have free reign in our hearts that your spirit would diagnose, would heal all in one fell swoop this morning. We pray these things, desirous of the new life that you alone can give. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. On June 23rd, 2018, the Wild Boars soccer team was having quite the day. They had just finished practice, they had... Uh, a great practice and felt ready for the next match in front of them. And they decided that they would celebrate this good day by going and exploring a local cave. They had a birthday party they were going to go to after the cave visit, but they decided to squeeze in a quick visit to the cave to do exploring of a familiar cave that they had been in before. And so the 12 boys raced on their bikes toward the mountain and the caves and they excited the cave, they entered the, the cave system with their coach. They laid down their bikes and their backpacks at the entrance of the cave and entered into a very familiar scenario, one that they had been in before, knowing that they would just be in there about an hour, so they only brought their flashlights with them. So as the boys progressed into the cave, they followed the familiar route. They knew where they were going, but it then started to rain. And as the rain started to come down, the cave then began to fill with water, soon forcing the soccer team deeper and deeper and deeper into the cave as the water filled the channels within the cave, up to 16 feet in some places. The boys were forced to go into channels they didn't know, they had never been in before, and soon they found themselves two and a half miles deep within the cave. No food, no cell service, just their flashlights. Many of you are familiar with this story. Uh, There's been a few specials that have come out, a few films, and there's a Netflix special that's out now. And as this team was in the cave, and as they were soon discovered to be lost, there gathered outside the cave quite a few individuals to attempt to rescue them. The Thai Navy SEALs were out there, the diving team that was specialized in cave diving. They were called in and they said very clearly on that front that the likelihood of rescue was dim. The, the, the conditions were treacherous. The likelihood of finding them amidst all the different channels was next to nothing. 
It was very, very likely that these boys would indeed die. They needed a radical rescue. There's no hope for them at all outside of that. And it had to be a rescue from the outside that came in. It had to be a rescue to them and a rescue for them. In fact, that's the very definition of a rescue, isn't it? To be rescued means that you are in a situation that you cannot deliver yourself out of. And in this particular dire situation, there must be a deliverer who comes to deliver you from the danger and deliver you to a place of safety. Our text today, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is Paul's reminder as he writes to the church at Ephesus about their need and also by extension us, our own need to be rescued. And the rescue of the 12 boys and the coach in the cave is extreme and it is surreal and it is marvelous. It actually pales in comparison to the rescue that Paul emphasizes that all of humanity requires. And so there's a starting point that we must start with today, and that is this, that you and I need rescued, that you and I need rescued. So turn with me and look at the first three verses of chapter two as we lay the foundation for why it is that we need rescue. We read verse one of chapter two of Ephesians. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We need rescued because we are dead. Paul very clearly on the front end of this passage, emphasizes the condition of the Ephesus church and for us today, for the human condition. In the presence of the holy God, all of humanity is dead. And we must be reminded of this. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's reminding the Ephesus church that they are indeed spiritually dead as we need to be reminded today that we are spiritually dead. Because many of us feel very, very much alive. We do many things every single day that show that we are alive. We enjoy the things that life gives us. We enjoy all the daily interactions we have with one another and the things that life gives us. And we live gleefully unaware that we are in need of rescue. For Paul here in Ephesians 2, he's looking back at life before he was redeemed by the work of Christ. And so as he looks back, he's able to give a very clear diagnosis of the human condition. And he says that the diagnosis is dire. And he's calling Christians, and this would be a a primary call that I give to you today. If you are a Christian, you remember that your pre-Christ existence was one in which you were spiritually dead And you need to remember that so that you might marvel at your in Christ reality. Even as we've been singing all morning. And isn't that the case with rescue? When you're rescued, you have cause for celebration. When that rescue is complete, there is a celebration that follows. 
And so for many of us in this room today, we need to read this passage and say, yes, we once were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but we have been rescued. And so now there is a sense of celebration. But there's also another reason that Paul writes this passage, because there are those then and there are those now who are still spiritually dead. And he writes this, and I preach this today, so that those of us in this room or those of us that are hearing this message might indeed recognize that they, that we might still be spiritually dead in need of a rescue. There is no more important news to be said or heard on this Sunday morning. As Paul uses this dead language, obviously he's not referring to the literal death that all of us will one day face. We will all face a moment of death. But rather, Paul's referring to this spiritual death that manifests itself in this life. And there are marks that he lists in this passage on what a spiritual death looks like. And so if you look at your text here, you'll see that there's really three things that are highlighted that are evidences of spiritual death. Many of us think that being apart from God is freedom, but in reality, it is ultimate enslavement to be living in your spiritual death. So let's look at the text here and pull out these three things. We need rescued because we are dead, and we need rescued from these three things that he lists in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The first being the world. We are enslaved to the pattern of the world when we are spiritually dead. There's a course that the world lives in around us. And the world here is defined as any sort of a movement or kingdom that is opposed to the kingdom of God. And when you are spiritually dead, you are enslaved to the pattern and the course of the world around us. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 4, the apostle Paul defines the world as a present evil age. It's an age that is set opposed to the kingdom of God, to the holiness of God. And it is not a neutral age. It is an evil age. And when we are spiritually dead, we are in bondage to that present evil age. Your life is marked and defined as the world is marked and defined. Your life is influenced by society, by the habits, the attitudes, the purposes that are reflective of this world and not the kingdom of God as he presents it. So to be spiritually dead means you're enslaved to the world. And then Paul gets a little bit more harsh here when he says, you're also enslaved to the devil. I think many of us assume that to be absent of a relationship with God is just to be living on your own. Well, Paul very clearly here says, no, to be absent of a relationship with God means that you are actually enslaved by the devil himself. He calls him the prince of the power of the air. You're actually actively living under the control and under the influence, under the inspiration, under the, the one who empowers the pattern of this world, the devil. Paul goes on in Ephesians and writes a lot about spiritual warfare and the things that are happening around us. And this is the, the beginning of that conversation. And what he's saying is that the devil is tactically active in this world to present a course, to lure people into that course that is away or opposed to the goodness of God. He calls him the prince of the power of the air, and that's meant... It's a very important phrase 
For we think of air, when actually we don't think of air. It's there. It's everywhere. In fact, you really only notice it when it's not. The devil's influence is felt everywhere in this age. This age. He is the power of the air. Just as air is all around us and we breathe it in without being fully aware of it, the influence of the devil and his course is everywhere in this world. If you are spiritually dead, you are enslaved to the devil's influence. For he also exercises power over the lives of men and women in this world. Paul says that those who fall prey to the power of the air, the devil... They are called sons of disobedience. He's very careful with his language here, but he's also very, very harsh. He's following in the line of Jesus, by the way. Jesus says that if you are not following him, then you are following the one who is of this world. In John chapter 8, he addresses the Pharisees and others who heard him. And he says to them, why do you not understand what I have to say? I can tell you why. It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. If you are dead in your sins, if you are spiritually dead, then your father is the devil. Those who are sons of disobedience are those who will not respond to the authority of God. They reject the gospel. They disregard the will of God. The devil is indeed at work in those who have not personally been rescued by the work of Jesus Christ. So you're enslaved to the world, to the devil, and to the flesh. The flesh is the pattern of this world as it's empowered by the luring words of the devil. And Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says that as we live in the pattern of this world, as we are empowered by the devil, then we live a life where we pursue all the desires and all the passions of our flesh. Our entire focus, our entire mind, our entire body is geared towards simply responding to those urges that we have within us. And so many of us think, oh, well, that's simply a sexual thing. That's not at all what this is addressing. This is addressing both a sexual thing and everything else in life. Anger, wrath, greed, dishonesty, all the marks of someone who is spiritually dead. And what is particularly heavy about this is as we are falling and pray to the world, the devil, and the flesh, then we come into this reality that we see here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we now experience the wrath of God. We are, in fact, Paul says, by nature experiencing the wrath of God. Many of us think that the wrath of God is something that is future-based. That's not what Paul is addressing here. The wrath of God is a present reality for those who are living a life apart from him, those who are spiritually dead. It is seen in God giving humanity over to their impurity in Romans chapter 1, verse 24. And some of you say, well, I'm not that bad. <laughs> I, I, I'm not this bad. Well, we are. Paul says, all of us were once this way. 
Because that's how we were born. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 tells us that the sin of Adam that occurred in Genesis chapter 3 has traced its way all through humanity so that all of us are born in a sinful state as sin entered through one man, that man being Adam. All of us are in a sinful state. You are born into it. You don't grow into it. So we are not neutral before God. We are born spiritually dead before God. And I hope that right now, even as we begin this sermon in this first point, you're like, well, this is not an encouraging sermon at all. <laughs> this is hard to hear. Well, you should be in my shoes. The weight must be felt up front so that we can get to verse 4. And you can see by my face, I'm excited to get to verse 4 because all of us are indeed spiritually dead. And then we get to verse 4. And look at the beautiful verse that is in front of you in verse 4 through verse 6 of chapter 2. And it begins with the most wonderful words we could ever hear on a Sunday morning. And it says this, But God... You were spiritually dead. You were following the world. I was following the devil. We were enslaved to the flesh. But God. I just preached in Africa two weeks ago. Can I get an amen? amen. I got some yips and everything in Africa. <laughs> there it is. But God. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when you were in that position of spiritual death, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Point two, but God... Listen to the full extent of these two words. On this Sunday morning, I can think of no more hope-filled words. Once we were dead to any real love for God at all, we were buried under the bondage of this world, but God. Once we were deceived by the father of lies and his lies of freedom, but only realized enslavement, but God. Once we were driven by the passions of the flesh, driven by and tossed by the impulsive waves of sinful self and destruction, but God. Once we were God's enemies, living as spiritually dead men and women, we were accumulating the wrath of God upon us and within us. We were hating him and warring against his good reign, but God. And those that are rescued... We respond to the rescue and the rescuer. And look at how Paul details our rescue. First and foremost, he says that we are made alive with Christ. At the very time when we were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. And what Paul is doing here is he's contrasting what he said in verses 1 through 3 regarding our death. You were dead, now you are alive. You were enslaved, now you are set free. This is the contrast that Paul sets forth. This is the power of God's work for you. All that once defined you, God by his rich mercy undoes. And this happens because Jesus Christ was made alive. 
And so Paul says, you were made alive with Christ. It is really, really, really important that Easter happens. (laughs) Not just so that you can wear your best suit to church and have ham. (laughs) Easter occurred. The resurrection occurred so that those of us who were dead in our sins might be raised again with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, a firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man, Adam, came death by a man, Jesus, has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die... In Christ, all shall be made alive. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us the spiritual life that we can't give ourselves. And when did this happen? The resurrection of Christ and the life that he gives us happened not when we sort of became alive. I think often, even in this point right now, it's not in my notes, so it's dangerous for me to go here, but I'm going to because I can't control my mind. When I was a young boy, we watched a movie called The Princess Bride. Anyone familiar with that movie? Right? One of the best parts of that movie is when the, the, uh, the young prince is dead, and he's like, well, he's not dead. He's just mostly dead. <laughs> That's not the case here. <laughs> you were completely dead spiritually. And when did Christ redeem you? When you were completely dead spiritually. Not mostly dead. There wasn't a spark of goodness within you. There wasn't a spark of holiness within you. You were dead spiritually and his grace overwhelms you. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says that God shows his love. In fact, it begins with but God, which is awesome, right? But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. There was no life that we brought to the table and then Christ was like, good job, you got this far, I'll take it the rest of the way. No, you were spiritually dead in your trespasses. I was spiritually dead in my trespasses and God in his goodness rescued you and brought life to you. We have an illustration of that, by the way, in the Bible. When, John, when Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus wasn't sort of dead. In fact, details are given in that passage to remind us of how dead Lazarus was. When Christ goes to the tomb and he says, open the tomb, his sister, Lazarus' sister says, don't open the tomb, he stinks. He's been there three days. That's how dead he was. But the words of Christ said, Lazarus, come forward. And guess what happened? Lazarus came forward. That's the power of the resurrection and the life given to those of us that are spiritually dead. You who were dead by Christ have been made alive. And then note that he says you were made alive with Christ, but then you were raised and seated with Christ. As Christ was resurrected and now ascended and now sits in heaven, our position is now with him. And you're like, well, I'm in Canfield, Ohio today. Yes, and also with Christ. And note the details that Paul puts here. This resurrection, this ascension, and this seated position of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1-3, we read that Christ sat down next to the Father after the completion of his work on this earth. And so he sits in victory 
of his completed work. And now because of the spiritual life he gives us, we sit in victory of Christ's completed work. The spiritually dead have been made spiritually alive by the work of Jesus Christ. John Calvin says this about this text. He says, humanity, by virtue of Christ's conquest of sin and death and by his exaltation, is lifted from the deepest hell to heaven itself. And so, brothers and sisters, you have been raised and seated with Christ. And notice this, that all of this is accomplished and empowered by his great mercy and his great love. Some of you that have followed along in your text said, Dan, you skipped over verse four. No, I didn't. I wanted to come back to it. The being made alive with Christ and the activity of being raised and seated with Christ all occurred because of God's great mercy and empowered by his great love. The life given to the spiritual dead occurs because of the love of God, not because of the love we have for God. And notice the detail that he gives here in verse 4. God is called rich in mercy. Nowhere else in scripture is God ever called rich in anything. It's assumed. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's rich. Everything on this earth is his. He's rich. But here specifically, Paul says, he is rich in mercy. And there's a reason behind that. And the reason that Paul wants to emphasize the richness of God and his mercy is because many of us don't expect God to be rich in mercy. We expect him to be stingy in his mercy. And that's not the case. It's a shocking literary technique that Paul puts forward here. God is rich in mercy, and he is rich in mercy towards those who are dead in their sins. He is wealthy in his mercy towards the sinner. There is no end to the account of his mercy. The balance of mercy is never low. Why? Because the balance of his mercy is empowered by his love. And what do we know about God's love? He is love. And so therefore, his mercy never ever ends for the sinner. Not for the good people, for the sinner who confesses his mercy is rich. In the middle of verse 5, <clears throat> Paul's a little bit like a junior high student. If you have one, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes they get impulsive and just say something. In the middle of verse 5, Paul says, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ, and then he does this parenthetical statement just kind of thrown in there but it's not really thrown in there he's like you've been made alive by the grace of God by grace you have been saved it's almost like he can't contain himself by grace you have been saved as God showers his mercy empowered by his love it takes the form of his grace to the sinful person and this is a really important point I could go very deep into the theological ideas of grace and whatnot but I'm going to simplify it for us grace is indeed God's riches given to us and we define it as such but there's another way to think about grace and that's found in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 for in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, we read, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so as we ask the question, what is the grace of God? Perhaps a better, way, a better question to ask is, who is the grace of God? 
Because the grace of God isn't just a theological concept. The grace of God is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. And as Jesus Christ came, he embodied God's theologically rich grace to the sinful person. And so if you want to see and understand just how rich God's grace is towards you as a sinner, simply look through the Gospels and see the activity of Jesus Christ, and you will see the specific nature of God's grace towards sinful people. Look at his work. Look at his sacrifice. Look at his death. Look at his burial. Look at his resurrection. Look at his ascension. Look at his now current intercession. And that is the riches of God's mercy given to us in his grace, who is Jesus Christ. You and I need rescued because we are dead. But God has given us rescue through his grace in Jesus Christ. And as we come to an end of our time, This morning, the 13 boys were rescued. You know the story. But maybe there's a detail of the story that you didn't know. The 13 boys were rescued, and they decided on a really unique way of rescuing them. There were some options of rescue that were tossed about. One was actually to wait four months until the rainy season ended. The other was to actually dig a tunnel in the side of a mountain And when they realized that both those options would result in the death of those boys, they said, we have to do something with much more urgency. And so they figured out that if they could sedate the boys to the point where they were on a stretcher with a full face mask, unaware of being rescued, then they could rescue them. Simply no way for those boys to do the dive on their own. They had to be in a place of sedation and they had to let the rescuer do the work of rescuing them. That fits, doesn't it? You and I can't rescue ourselves. We're spiritually dead. There's no life within us. But God in his great mercy has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to rescue us. And what that means, the idea of grace, is that we simply say to him, as the spirit sparks the conviction of our sin within us, you say to him, Jesus Christ, be my rescuer. Rescue me from my sins. Give me life that comes only from you. And we read in the scriptures that he will indeed do so. By grace, by Jesus Christ, you have been saved. You have been rescued. And real quickly, one final point. Every rescue has a destination. Think back to the boys. They didn't rescue them and then say, all right, now I'll take you back to the cave. Good job. No, every rescue has a deliverance from the place where you are in danger to the place where you are not. And in verse 7, the Apostle Paul highlights this place of rescue. And look at verse 7 with me. He says, So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Friends, becoming a Christian isn't only about getting to heaven. There are dramatic implications to living as a Christian in this life. And wonderful teachings to that regard throughout Scripture. However, the coming ages for the Christian is indeed the certain reality for the Christian. There is a place of rescue. 
God redeems and rescues his people so that he can be with his people. And look at what this is going to be like in verse 7. As we pass from this life to the next in the coming ages, the coming ages will be filled with an opportunity for God to bask in the glory of his riches and his grace given to us. And so as you pass from this life to the next, if you are a child of God, you will pass and immediately be transfixed by the goodness and the grace of God. You will marvel without end. The immeasurable riches of his grace in the coming ages, it is then that we will see how far his grace has outstripped our failures. Are you excited for that day? His grace is immeasurable, and so we catch glimpses of his grace even now in our life. We catch it even this morning as we're singing about it and praying about it and thinking about it. But our eternal destination will be to increasingly enjoy and wonder at the marvelous grace, and it will take an eternity to even begin to get your mind wrapped around it. Charles Spurgeon says that when the saints shall be gathered home, they shall still talk and speak of the wonders of Jehovah's love in Christ Jesus. And in the golden streets, they shall stand up and tell what the Lord has done for them to the listening crowds of angels and principalities and powers. Think of those people that you know who have gone ahead of you. Guess what they're doing on this Sunday morning? They're marveling at the immeasurable riches of his grace, even as we are in this place today. And then we will see in the heavens that his kindness is given to us in Christ Jesus. We don't often think of God as kind. But all of eternity will be spent wondering about how kind he is to us. That's a very specific disclaimer there. This is not just a general universal kindness. This is a kindness with your name attached to it. This is a kindness that is actually described in Greek as preventing discomfort in someone. So you're going out of your way to ensure that they are, have, they are, are taken care of. And it's the same word that Jesus Christ used in Matthew 11:30 when he said his yoke is easy. He's actually saying my yoke is kind. This is a specific kindness that is to you. And so as you enter into the coming ages where you marvel at his immeasurable riches of his grace, you will marvel also at his kindness to you. We serve a kind God. And so there's a destination to our rescue. And it's a destination that will be in the presence of God who has redeemed us so that he might uncover in greater and greater measure his grace and his kindness. Friends, Brothers and sisters, by grace, by Jesus Christ, you have been saved. You have been rescued. And as all rescues have a destination, our destination will be to rejoice in the author of our rescue for all eternity. So two things. May you who are alive rejoice that you are given life by Jesus Christ. And maybe today, secondly, some of you have come to the realization that you are spiritually dead. Your affections 
have been cold towards the things of God. Your obedience and your surrender to him is non-existent and your worship to God as your creator and sustainer is silent. Maybe you recognize now that you are spiritually dead. I want to say to you today, it is no accident that you are here today. My prayer is that you would respond to the spark of the spirit within you and you would come and confess that you need rescued and Jesus Christ will graciously give you his life because this is what he desires to do. Do not delay on both sides. Rejoice and surrender. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for time in your word this morning. I thank you that you who are life have given us life. And so I pray, Father, that those of us who are alive by your great work would rejoice with overflowing joy. And I pray for those in this room, Holy Spirit, may you do a work where those who have been spiritually dead recognize deadness and recognize the gift of life through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this moment. Thank you for the effectiveness of your word. In your great name we pray, amen.